the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, it's amazing. We look at the way technology and information has changed so rapidly. And we see the growing face of the demographics in our nation today, uh, certainly uh, most notably in a state like California. Somebody had a comment to me the other day, you know, for much of the early history of the United States up until uh, probably the last 50 or 60 years. And and to a great degree, it continues to this day, though not as prominently. uh, America had been the biggest and most active sending nation in terms of sending nations or sending individuals overseas to the nations to bring about uh, the um, uh, dissemination of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've learned in more recent years that uh, while that can be uh, effective, uh, even more still, it's effective to help train nationals because not only is it um, uh, better stewardship from the economics of it all, but then, too, you're not having to call upon individuals to suddenly immerse themselves in a new culture, a new language, new surroundings, which takes some time for acclimation before you can really become effective at what you're doing in terms of ministering to people on the ground in country. With all of that said, a buddy of mine the other day made the observation. He says, you know, with the changing demographics of America and the way the Internet uh, has has made this um, spinning sphere of ours called planet Earth so small, it's almost as if the world has come to us. And in many degrees, it has. And this is a, perhaps a renewed opportunity for we as the church, the body of Christ, to understand the rare and unique opportunity that we have to uh, share the good news, to share that hope uh, and, the, and the good news of the answer that we have through Christ Jesus. With that thought in mind, when we talk about um, the world and we get down to the missiology of, of a Christian worldview, what exactly is that? What do we mean by that? Well, with some in-depth look at how to become a world-class Christian, becoming a part of God's global kingdom, we're joined now by a best-selling author, Paul Brothrick. And uh, Paul, great to have you on the program tonight. Thanks, Greg. Good to be out on the West Coast, at least by voice. Yeah, I must say, I, I guess welcome back. As I understand it, the last time that you were out here, uh, unless there's an in-between trip that I hadn't heard about, the last time you were out in our fair city, there was a whole lot of shaking going on. Oh, I think I've had a few trips in between. Yeah, okay. I was, <laughs> I was there during uh, the October 1989 shakeup. Uh, I think it was 89, wasn't it? Or it was 91. 19, 1989, October 17th to be precise. I was down at the Hyatt Regency Burlingame at a conference. I was teaching at about 5.15, and the room began to shake. Of course, I thought it was the Holy Ghost coming upon us. But, uh, <laughs> turned out to be an earthquake, which was my first and only earthquake experience. I'm from the Boston area all my life, and uh, so it was quite an unusual experience, to say the least. Well, we're, we're pleased uh, to have the distinction of uh, having provided you with your first and, and hopefully only experience in, in such matters. But it's interesting as we start our visit tonight, uh, Paul, with a reference to uh, the, the ground shaking. We've certainly seen a lot of that, too, in the spiritual realm, haven't we? I made reference in my opening remarks to how the world is getting so much smaller and how that in many respects, as we had been uh, the, the largest and most active sending nation in terms of sending missionaries overseas, how that in many respects... The world is now coming to us. 
Absolutely. And, you know, outside of the actual time that Jesus walked the earth, I actually can't think of a time in Christian history that's more exciting to be alive than today. Partly because all those American and European lives that got laid down as uh, martyrs for Christ, you know, a century and a, or 50 years ago, uh, their lives have brought forth fruit. And now you have uh, the whole church, as the saying goes, taking the whole gospel to the whole world. And uh, it's just a staggering thing. And as I think you quoted earlier, uh, the world has come to us. And I was reading not too long ago a statistic that said the United Nations is citing the fact that the United States is the only country on Earth with someone from every other country on Earth living in it. Mm. And, you know, when we used to have to go to some really difficult places, in many respects, many of us can reach the unreached peoples of the world simply by reaching out to the, uh, you know, our Muslim coworker or the uh, the Buddhist guy who's down the street or the Hindu who happens to be my medical doctor. I mean, you know, it's it's amazing how the world has changed. We sit here with these devices in the palm of our hand that allows us to text, email. Uh, we can look up uh, websites anywhere around the globe. I think we certainly today, as as Americans, have got a pretty good understanding of what it means to be globally connected. But I have to wonder, though, Paul, from a Christian perspective, um, as much as the the technology has advanced quite nicely, has the theology kept up with it? Meaning, uh, as as we understand what it means to be globally connected, do Christians really understand also what it means to be uh, globally concerned? I think that's that's an excellent question, Um, and I think obviously the answer is going to vary according to the Christian you talk to. The, The sad reality is that technology has given us access to more knowledge than any of us can possibly handle. And as a result, uh, we can become either numb to it or we just shrug it off and say, I can't do anything, I can't make any difference at all. And, uh, you know, you mentioned this book, Being a World-Class Christian. Um, It's really about trying to help people see that, you know, you might not be able to change the world, but you might be able to do something of global significance right in your own community, right in your own neighborhood, or at your workplace, or something like that. But I think you're right. It's Technology has made it uh, so overwhelming that, you know, you, you, you go live to the tsunami in Sri Lanka, and by the third day of seeing it, you're just numb to it, because you can't really do that much about it. And it's just another news report to you after a while. And I think that's, you know, we, most of us have forgotten to be praying for Egypt, And yet, a year ago, Egypt was every day in the news. Now, it's still going through the news, but we're not paying as much attention to it because we have kind of a short attention span. Well, and the new technology, too, you know, where uh, heretofore it might have taken months for the news to arrive from overseas and be disseminated across the spans of a country like the United States, uh, typically by word of mouth, uh, telegraphed to a degree, and, and, and the printed page now happens in the matter of seconds. And as quickly as it comes, it's also just as quickly replaced by something else. Uh, you, you made reference to the idea that we might be able to make some changes, we might be able to have some influence, but I have to wonder, uh, as Christians living in this modern world, with all that's going on around us, as we speak to that notion of being globally concerned, is this something that is an option for some believers, or does it really kind of narrow down to being a mandate? Well, it depends on what Bible you're going to use. <laughs> I mean, frankly... If you look in the scriptures, you cannot escape the fact that God's vision, God's view is for the world and for his people, because for whatever mysterious reason, God has chosen to do his work in the world through people, broken people, forgiven people like you and me. 
and every one of us has some degree of responsibility. In other words, the mandate, since you used that word, that Jesus gave before he ascended into heaven, you know, to make disciples of all nations, or to preach the gospel to all creation, or to, uh, to be, you know, preach the gospel beginning in Jerusalem to all the nations. I mean, all those things, they still um, remain for each Christian today, and our question is not, where we are sent, i sorry, our question is not if we are sent into the world, the question is where. And, you know, opening our eyes to the global realities that God said in the Psalms, you know, declare my glory to the nations, my wonderful deeds to all peoples, that's still binding on us today. It's not a matter of just, you know, tucking ourselves away in our safe little bubble and, uh, and thanking God that we have a nice, prosperous life. It's about looking out into the world and saying, what difference can I make that God has uniquely equipped me for? Today, we're talking about uh, what it means to be a world-class Christian. Uh, Let me be careful that we didn't say a worldly Christian. A lot of folks have got that down pat. We're talking about being a world-class Christian. And with us is best-selling author Paul Brothwick. We're going to come back after a brief timeout, dive a little bit deeper in here, you know, as we talk about the way in which uh, television, satellite, and the Internet and technology has has brought us closer together. I wonder if it's also made us easier to be more uh, spectators as to what is going on in the world around us. Us, as opposed to being participants. We'll dive into that question as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Recent polls have shown a fifth of Americans can't locate the U.S. on a world map. Why do you think this is? I personally believe that U.S. Americans are unable to do so because uh, some people out there in our nation don't have maps and uh, I believe that our ed- education like such as in South Africa and uh, the Iraq everywhere like such as and I believe that they should uh, our education over here in the U.S. should help the U.S. or should help South Africa and should help the Iraq and the Asian countries so we will be able to build up our future for our children. Thank you very much. Oh yeah we thank you very much. That that tortured answer as much as we listen to it also demonstrative of a huge need for uh, deeper education when you begin to realize that beyond the notion that uh, fewer than three in ten graduates thinks it's important to know the locations of countries in the news and fully 66 percent can't even find Iraq or Saudi Arabia on a map that a large percentage of them even can't uh, can't even find America. Of course, I guess they lack maps and call Google on that one, would you? I, it just is demonstrative of what seems to be a greater level of global connectivity, and yet we're we're not even participating. We're just kind of very casual spectators to it all at many levels. We're visiting today with best-selling author Paul Brothwick. His new book is called How to Be a World-Class Christian, Becoming Part of God's Global Kingdom. Uh, Paul, that, that tortured answer there from uh, a beauty pageant contestant a couple of years ago, certainly uh, troubling in terms of just the notion of the, of the level of, of, of disconnectivity at a day and an age when, quite frankly, staying connected and being educated and, and being able to participate is easier now than it ever was before. Well, I've, I've had an elder at our church ask us, uh, what is the capital of Africa? And, uh, and you know, if you don't get that that's a, uh, a joke, it's there are 53 or 55 countries in Africa, each with their own capital, you know, and yet he thinks of Africa as a country, not as a continent, you know. And, yeah, it's, it's kind of scary. Um, I oftentimes ask 
um, people who are either new to this country or international students, what's the stupidest question that an American has ever asked you? And I had a student this past semester from Malawi, southeastern Africa, and um, and I asked him what is the stupidest question, and they they somebody he was up in uh, Maine, not, not too far from us, and the church that he was hosted by asked him when he started wearing clothes. <laughs> All right, and and he thought it was a joke. Sure. So he said, well, when I came to New York after I got through customs, I decided to buy some clothes, and the people were horrified, and he knew they weren't kidding. Meaning that they didn't know, and he, because they were thinking, you know, he had come all the way over here, buck naked, and bought clothes on the other side of customs in New York City, <laughs> and yet they were, you know, and one of my uh, friends in Nigeria said he got so tired of Americans asking him how he learned English when Nigeria is an English-speaking country, and he said, uh, he said, finally, I got, I decided to tell him I was, I learned it on the plane on the flight over. <laughs> You know, but I mean, to be fair, and I, I, you know, I can be as critical as anybody about Americans' lack of geography knowledge. Uh, but to be fair, there is hardly a place on planet Earth where you can travel for three thousand continuous miles, speak one language, go to Denny's, you know, stay at Hampton Inn, ride on highways that look all remarkably the same in terms of their signposts and everything. So, I mean, in one sense, unlike a country like Luxembourg or Switzerland, where we're surrounded by three or four other language-speaking countries, you know, Americans can be pretty lazy about it. Now, I mean, obviously, um, the influx of Spanish speakers and Chinese speakers, Korean speakers, whatever, is changing some of that in our urban areas. But generally speaking, we don't have to learn about the other countries of the world. And many times I've traveled and people will say they know more about my country, meaning the USA, than I do. And sometimes they do because they are directly affected by the decisions that our government makes and decisions that our military makes. And I'm, you know, it's it affects me somewhat, but not on a day-to-day basis, generally speaking. As the world is coming more to us, and and as we certainly, as you've explained earlier, uh, Paul, not been relieved of any obligation in terms of you know the the perspective of bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to Judea, Samaria, the other most parts of the earth. Um, how can how should Christians begin to develop uh, not just a Christian worldview, but how to become a world-class Christian? Well, I think one of the things that I advocate in the book is obviously cultivating some information, you know, learning about places, that that the Islam of Iran is not the same as the Islam of Iraq, for example, and uh, and what's going on in Egypt affects the entire Arabic-speaking world. Or, you know, learning something about what uh, one article in Time magazine calls the upcoming Chindian century. And it's talking about how the economies of China and India will probably be more significant in the next hundred years than the USA. And wrestling with those kind of questions, even if we disagree with them, to just get some information that sort of rattles our cage a little bit. Because the United States, depending on whose statistics you use, is really only about 5% of the world's population. And so if God so loved the world, John 3.16 then there's a lot to be learned about the world that God loves outside of our own country, as well as within it. One very simple thing that I propose in the book, and in the time that we had on the radio, I want to make sure to say this, because every person, when you start thinking about the world, can feel pretty overwhelmed by it. So my number one creative idea, and I think it's the only one I've ever had, is start your knowledge for the world by praying for the country on the label of your clothes. Okay, so when you take your clothes off, you change any pajamas or whatever tonight, take a look at it, see where it's made, and pray for that country. 
And I dare say that probably 90% of the clothes in your closet are made someplace else in the world. And you can start learning about them. You know, China's obviously going to be there. India, world's largest Hindu country. Indonesia, the world's largest Muslim country. And these places are touching us that way just to get us started thinking about the fact that the world is in our midst, starting with our own, our own wardrobe. And as we pointed out earlier, and, and the world is coming to us, and so the ability to be educated, to be sensitive, particularly as we take into consideration uh, religious differences, cultural viewpoints, uh, can only help but to make us not only more sensitive, but more effective when it comes to sharing the gospel. Yeah, and, and I believe, you know, I mean, there's all sorts of debates about immigration and unregistered people, illegal aliens, and all this other stuff. But in, very, in one very specific Christian perspective on it is, I want people to abide by the law. That's not my point. But they're here, and maybe God brought them here so they could hear the gospel from us. As one Toronto pastor said, Toronto is probably the most international city in, US, in, in, the, uh, in North America. Uh, and he, he's a Toronto pastor, and he said, uh, God commanded us to go to all the nations. We didn't go, so he's bringing all the nations to us. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you can go down to Southern California and meet a scad of people from, uh, from Iran. They'll call themselves Persians, but they're from Iran, and many of them are adherents to Shiite Islam or to uh, Zoroastrianism, a religion from Iran. And they may have never heard the gospel until they came to come to this country. And if we don't reach out to them, they may still never hear the gospel. And it's just, you know, an amazing uh, opportunity that God's given us. Uh, one, one quick uh, lesson that I learned from one of my professors. He said, when you're walking down the street, let's say in the Bay Area, you're walking down you know, uh, streets in San Francisco, and you see a man uh, with his wife, she has a headscarf on, or you know, there's something about their attire that tells you that, that distinctively some other religion. Maybe he has, he has the turban on, and he tells you, he tells you he's a Sikh. He says, he says, pray as you pass by that person, just breathe a prayer, shoot up a prayer on behalf of that person. He said, you might be praying for someone who's never been prayed for in Jesus' name before in their whole lives. And you're bringing that person before Jesus for the first time. And I mean, think of that as, you know, what a staggering opportunity that we have when the people have come to our country because they're finding this is the place for, you know, uh, a better economic future. But why not help give them a better eternal future? We mentioned earlier that in addition to just taking the time to get educated and something simple is maybe saying, uh, you know, I'm going to see where my shirt was made. Google the name. Look at the country. Pray for that country tonight. Um, you, you talk to a lot in the book about uh, um, being able to get a, a focus on being globally aware. Certainly, compassion fatigue sometimes can be a challenge, as we lightly touched on earlier. But when we bring this whole thing together, how do you believe that God wants us to develop, to develop this, this Christian worldview, how to become uniquely a world-class Christian? Well, I think that uh, it has something to do with a phrase that I picked up off a bumper sticker. I don't even think it was Christian by nature, but it said, it says, think globally, act locally. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think that's a great summary of what I'm after in my own life, you know, as well as uh, in encouragement in this book, to, to realize that, A, we're part of a global Christian family, 
So when the church suffers in, I'll use Egypt since I referred to that earlier, uh, that my family is suffering, you know, so I, I'm thinking about that. But I'm also acting locally so that when I meet the uh, Egyptian guy at the medical clinic, uh, I, I'm aware of the fact that, you know, I might be reaching out to someone that my friends in Egypt have never been able to reach. And so, you know, it's all a matter of a mindset. It's going into the day. I mean, just this morning I was uh, preparing my breakfast and remembered to pray for Columbia, South America, because when I took the sticker off of the bananas, uh, it, it was actually harvested in Colombia. It says it right there on the sticker. You know, just sort of keeping aware of the fact that there's a bigger world than just the world that I'm in. And, you know, many many people are struggling with the economics of the, t the situation today. Maybe they're in a unemployment situation or underemployment. But just trying to get past ourselves a little bit to realize there's a big world out there and uh, we have an awesome God and we need to get plugged into thinking of ourselves as his agents in this world, whether we're in the unemployment line or we're in the gas station talking to somebody who might have just come here from another country. Get a copy of Paul's book. This will open your eyes and help you develop more of this sense of that Christian worldview. How to be a world-class Christian becoming part of God's global kingdom. And our thanks to Paul Bothwick for being with us tonight on this edition of Lifeline. The book, by the way, published by Inner Varsity Press and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, you look at the headline news of the last, my goodness, six, eight months or so, and it just seems like no matter where you turn, we're seeing incidences of racial unrest, <laughs> massacres in churches, economic imbalance, social strife, on and on the list goes. Hard sometimes, perhaps, to see hope and justice and reconciliation in the midst of this turmoil. A lot of people, I think, have concluded that we're, if not in, we're certainly rapidly heading toward the end days. And meanwhile, we wonder, well, what does that mean for us from a faith perspective? How can we better find places in which not only God is working to bring about healing and restoration, but most importantly, feel as if the work, the job that we do is significant toward that end. Warren Smith joins us now, Vice President of World News Group, and perhaps you are a subscriber to his wildly popular World Magazine. He's authored more than 10 best-selling books, including the most recent, Restoring All Things, God's Audacious Plan to Change the World Through Everyday People. And Warren, great to have you on the program. Great, great to be on with you. Thank you so much. It is hard sometimes not to be discouraged, and just as we sort of uh, reach the point that we seemingly have processed the significance of yet another major negative news event. Uh, sure as the sun will rise tomorrow, here comes one more. And I think for a lot of people, not only do you kind of get a sense that your your hope meter is, is wearing out in all of this, but that you're, you're wondering, well, where exactly is God in all of this? And, and is there any hope in which I can play some kind of small role in engaging in some kind of significant, important change in our society today? Well, you're exactly right, Craig. And, you know, it, it, you don't have to look any farther than the headlines. That's exactly right to see uh, bad news. I mean, the Supreme Court rulings have been really discouraging to a lot of Christians. Uh, we see ISIS uh, just murdering Christians all over the Middle East. I mean, you're, you're right. I mean, there's plenty of reason uh, to, um, to say 
that we live in serious times. But uh, we, uh, as Christians, are not allowed to despair. Despair is a sin. Uh, despair means we've given up hope. And, of course, Christians, of all people, should be people of hope. Uh, faith, hope, and love, Jesus said, or, or uh, uh, the Bible says, not Jesus it, it per se, but the Bible says, or the, the three chief Christian virtues. And so that's one of the reasons why John Stone Street and I uh, wanted to write this book, Restoring All Things, because as we have been looking out at the world at all these negative uh, stories, we've also been been seeing something just quite remarkable, and that has been God's people doing God's work in the midst of all the chaos that's going on around us. And when God's people do that, when God's people just don't get distracted and continue to engage in God's work, which is loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbors as ourselves. It's amazing what's happening. We've seen communities transformed. We've seen lives rebuilt. We've seen entire cities uh, transformed. It's, it's in the case of Atlanta or Detroit. Um, uh, Atlanta, an organization called SCS Urban Ministries, and in Detroit, a ministry called Emmanuel Temple, which are two organizations that we profile and restore in all things. So we wanted to tell some of those stories because we felt like Christians did need some hope in the midst of these chaotic times. So at the end of the day, is it less about the news events and more about perspective and I, and I asked that question because you know, when we were kids uh, we all were raised in school to uh, to master the three basic R's reading, writing and arithmetic something always told me that one of those words at least was misspelled <laughs> right. but from from a from a Christian perspective there's another set of three R's that I think we can't forget that in fact is foundational to our very faith which is what leads me to this question about perspective and that is another set of three R's Redemption, reconciliation, and restoration, which is foundational to God's plan for not only mankind here on earth, but certainly the role that that, uh, that Christ played in world history. Well, that, that's exactly right. You know, in fact, I'm glad you brought up those three R's because there are, in fact, many more than those three R's in Scripture. We, in fact, we begin near the beginning of the book. We talk about the rewords of Scripture, and you've mentioned three of them uh, there. Uh, too often, however, Christians focus on another set of R's, which are words like rebuke and resist and uh, engage in those activities that um, are trying to hold back the tide of chaos. Whereas uh, I think if we focus more on the three R's that you mentioned, R's like reconciliation and restoration and redemption, uh, we we become people who um, not only are actively engaged in the work that God is calling us to do, this this activity of, of restoring all things to himself, but we are also presenting a witness to the world that I think they will find compelling. You know, it's it's one thing um, to say that Jesus saves and Jesus uh, transforms and Jesus redeems, but if our lives don't show that, Craig, it's, that argument is not convincing. That declaration of the gospel, however true, is not convincing. But whenever we are actively engaged in the process of reconciliation, not only are we declaring the gospel, but we are demonstrating the gospel in our lives. And I think that's a much more convincing proclamation of the gospel. Well, in many respects, too, don't we find that message uh, far more impactful in the middle of chaos? And, and I ask that question because, you know, let, let's use the example of the lives of any of us. If we pause for a moment and think, you know, if if you were doing well, you marry the perfect wife or husband, you had the perfect perfect job, you had the perfect 
perfect amount of money in the bank, you have perfect health, uh, all of it, a lot of people could argue, well, you know, for what do I really need God here, at least on earth? I mean, yeah, that fire insurance thing on the other side, yeah, that works out okay. But here in the here and now, I'm doing pretty well. But for most of us, our testimony is that in the midst of the pain, the agony, the chaos, when our life seemed to be falling apart uh, right before our eyes, there stepped in God with a message of healing and reconciliation and redemption. And so oftentimes, doesn't God work best in the middle of the chaos that sometimes we as Christians try to push back against and prevent from happening? And I wonder if sometimes we might accidentally be short-circuiting God's plan, because in the midst of that chaos, doesn't his grace shine the brightest? Well, I, all I can say to that, Craig, is amen and well said. Uh, you know, and, and, and throughout history, I think not only in our own individual lives, which you've just identified, but throughout history, we have found the Christian church thriving whenever the world around it was in chaos. We tell stories, for example, uh, from the second and third century, whenever the great plagues, um, uh, diseases were just just ravaging cities, and people were running out of the cities uh, into the rural areas just to keep themselves away from danger and disease. But it was the Christians who ran into the cities to care for the sick and the dying, many times sacrificing their own lives in that process. But it was such a powerful witness that we saw Christianity spread dramatically in the second and third centuries. Uh, even recently in the Ebola epidemic that we saw in Africa, uh, I was amazed at the doctors that were that um, got Ebola and that were put into the quarantine, and a couple of them even died as a result of their work there. And whenever I found out about their biographies, one doctor after another, one healthcare worker after another, were committed Christians working in that environment because they were motivated by the love of Christ and love for their neighbor. So this has been the story of the Christian church. I think it's a story that we sometimes do tend to forget in our prosperity here in America, but uh, it's one that we need to remember. Well, especially since at the core, if we talk about this from the, the viewpoint of it being a message of redemption, it suggests that there needs to be something from which one is being redeemed, does it not? Yeah. I mean, yeah, is, is, the, is the message of heaven all that powerful a one, uh, absence the existence of hell? I, I, would, I would suggest probably not. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, the great theologian F.F. Bruce Bruce once said that uh, an an understanding of sin is the beginning of salvation. And, uh, you know, it's important that we do um, understand that we're all sinners in need of a Savior. And it's it's also easy for us Christians to get a little self-righteous about where we sit versus our neighbor. But, you know, our neighbor, Jesus died for our neighbors, even the one, the neighbor that we don't like, you know, just as much as Jesus died for us. So I think that, um, you know, what you just said there is such a powerful component of this whole uh, understanding of a Christian worldview, which is that we do live in a fallen world, but that God loves us so much that he sent his son and when we accept him as Savior and are redeemed from our own sins, we get to participate with him in this process that uh, the New Testament describes as restoring all things uh, to its former glory. No, I, I wonder out loud if sometimes maybe this is not an example of um, spiritual laziness, maybe even a little bit of spiritual haughtiness, um, that sense of reveling in the bunker mentality that, well, everybody's against me, woe is me, look the way that they're attacking me, and so uh, we're doing uh, perhaps a yeoman's job at playing the victim here, um, and so maybe some people sort of revel in all of that as opposed to saying, look, in the midst of all this turmoil, we've got some work to do, and uh, in the midst of this 
this turmoil, God can do some amazing things in terms of extending that message of redemption, reconciliation, and restoration in and through me. We'll talk about that as our conversation continues. Warren Smith, Vice President of World's News Group, publisher of World Magazine, author of more than a dozen best-selling books. We're talking about uh, finding God's redemption in the midst of a chaotic world. A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Warren Smith, our guest today, Vice President of World News Group. He publishes World Magazine. He's the author of more than 10 best-selling books, including the most newly released, Restoring All Things, God's Audacious Plan to Change the World Through Everyday People. And maybe one of the big operative words in that book title, Warren, is everyday people. We look, as we intimated at the beginning of our conversation, at the headlines and what's going on in terms of racial unrest, economic imbalance, social strife, all of this taking place. It's it's hard, obviously, uh, and frustrating for a lot of people and then to maybe overwhelming in the sense that people feel as if well you know they'd like to be involved in being an agent of change and and affecting god's plan for uh, redemption reconciliation and restoration but maybe they feel like well as overwhelming as all this is though isn't my work largely going to be for naught and 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 ultimately insignificant well you know it's a really great question and that's why we wanted to tell stories of everyday people, as you said, uh, Craig. You know, uh, John Stone Street, uh, my co-author, uh, works a lot with Eric Metaxas uh, on the Breakpoint Radio uh, program. Eric has written books, uh, biographies of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and William Wilberforce, who ended the slave trade uh, in Britain in the 19th century. And it's easy to look at these great heroes of history and say, gee, I'm just little old Warren Smith. You know, I'm not uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer or, or um, Eric Metaxas even. Uh, so what can I do? And what we discovered in, in our searching around for stories and the stories that we reported in the book uh, were stories of, of individuals not doing great things, but doing small but really important things that had an impact over time. I'll give you a real quick example, and that is look at the life movement in this country, the pro-life movement in this country. Um, Will B. Wade happened in 1973, 1.3, 1.4 million abortions in this country per year at the peak back a number of years ago. But what we what has turned the tide, If you, today abortions, the number of abortions are going down, the younger generation is more pro-life than its parents. That's what public opinion surveys tell us. How did that happen? And, and a part of the reason uh, it happened was because of the pregnancy care center movement in this country. In thousands of communities all across America, uh, men and women have gotten together just to help other men and women in their local communities. Uh, th- this movement has sprung up spontaneously. It wasn't uh, a top-down movement. There wasn't somebody in Washington, D.C. or New York City or wherever saying we, we need to go uh, form 2,000 pregnancy care centers all across America. And yet, when we look you know, 20 or 25 years after that movement started, that's exactly what we what we have. It's, it's Christians imitating other Christians doing good work, which has caused the pregnancy care center movement to spread across this country and has created what we like to call this army of compassion that, that says to the world, you know, Christians are willing to put their money where their mouth is. Yes, they uh, they are engaged in pro-life activism. They are maybe engaged even in protests from time to time. But that's not all they do. They are also really caring 
uh, for men and women in crisis situations every single day in thousands of communities across America. It's made a huge difference in the life uh, issue in this country. And I think that kind of a movement could make a difference with poverty. It could make a difference with marriage. Uh, and uh, we, the good news is we do have that one model. Uh, the other news, I won't call it bad news, but I'll call it the other news, is that we still have a whole lot of work to do. Well, and you know what strikes me about even that example that you just shared, Warren, um, many people have often heard the story that from space, one of the more spectacular man-made um, edifices or, or uh, items that can be seen from space is the Great Wall of China. And it is from photographs that perhaps you've seen, an amazing sight to behold from so many miles up. And there you can very clearly make out the wall snaking its way uh, through that section of China. What's ironic about this, uh, that is, having seen the wall, been on it, walked on it, uh, it it is enormous, it is breathtaking, it is an incredible uh, work of, of feet to be sure. But you know what it's made up of? Individual small bricks. Any one of those bricks by and of themselves would not even be a speck on planet Earth that could be identified from space. But all of those bricks assembled together creates this incredible edifice that has such an impact that it can be seen from space. And it, and it, it, it dawns on me, Warren, that much the same is true of our efforts here, that you know, none of us singularly are going to calm racial unrest or uh, you know, bring about uh, fairness in, in economics or uh, settle social strife of an, uh, singularly on our own. But together, Doing a lot of small things together can really equal doing something great and tremendous that can have unbelievably large and eternal impact, can it? Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, the thing that we do doesn't even have to require a lot of time, money, and energy. At the end of Restoring All Things, both John Stone Street and I tell a story out of our own lives that kind of make the point of the book. John tells a remarkable story of when he was a high, in high school. Uh, he uh, had, it, really because he'd been cutting up in school, his teacher made him visit an older woman, what we used to call a shut-in, uh, and uh, as a punishment for, for cutting up in class. But So John visited this woman, who at that time was in, uh, probably seemed ancient to John, was in her 70s or even early 80s, and they just spent 30 minutes together, maybe an hour together. And John saw this woman a couple of years later, and, and John said, do you remember who I am? And the woman said, I have been praying for you every day since we first met. And that just the woman's praying for him and then telling John that she had been doing that, that she cared enough about him to to pray for him every day. John will tell you today that that changed the trajectory of his life. In my own life, I've got a story of my father who served in Korea. He was not a Christian believer whenever he was a 21-year-old infantryman on Heartbreak Ridge in Korea, but a Salvation Army worker whose name my father does not know, whose name is completely lost to history, uh, ministered to my father at a time of great need in his life. My father didn't become a Christian until 10 or 15 years later, but he always remembers the the act of compassion by this unnamed Salvation Army worker as having been a defining experience in his life in leading him ultimately to Christ, which of course changed the trajectory of my life and my children's lives. We don't know 
how God is going to use our availability. Uh, it's not about our ability, as the old saying goes, but it truly is about our availability. Our job, our goal, our responsibility is just to be obedient and to let the Holy Spirit work from there. And I, I think that uh, great things will happen. In the Absolutely. And of course, through that act of obedience, Warren, can come uh, God executing on his plan for redemption, reconciliation, and restoration. Warren Smith, again, the book is called... Restoring All Things, God's Audacious Plan to Change the World Through Everyday People, newly released by Baker Books and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, Amazon.com, and also through their website at restoringallthings.org. That's restoringallthings.org. And our thanks to Warren Smith for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.